Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome BJ to the show. Dr. BJ Johnson is CEO and co-founder of Clearflame Engine Technologies, a growing startup dedicated to developing clean engine technology for heavy-duty truck, off-highway, and industrial applications. BJ was the lead inventor on a patent filed by Stanford University for this work, which now forms the center of Clearflame's intellectual property. BJ, how are you doing today? I am great, Raj. I appreciate the opportunity to, to be here and to speak with you and your listeners. BJ, I am super excited to have you on and to dig into Clearflame. But before I do, I was doing some research on you and your co-founder, Julie, and on your website. And I want to start by the DEI statement that you and your co-founder have put out. Can you give some backstory regarding that? Yeah. So um, I am a person of color. I'm, I'm half black and my co-founder, Julie, is a woman. Um, you know, as we sort of approached this fairly traditional space, um, not just of engineering, but of of automotive and engine engineering, um, you know, it's a, it's a sector that has struggled with DEI in the past. Um, I think they are making great strides there, but there's still a long way to go. And Julie and I, we published that open letter on our website um, because we just wanted to be transparent about how those challenges have sometimes manifested themselves in our experience. Um, you know, not as necessarily, you know, a, a complaint about the world, but as an opportunity to showcase the many ways in which we do have to get better as a society. And also to let people know that, you know, th there are other people out there that like you, that there are other BJs and Julies out there, um, and that you're not alone necessarily in, in what you're experiencing. And that, you know, we as co-founders and we as Clearflame as a company are opening to having are open to having that dialogue as well, because I think that's the the first and most important stretch uh, step, excuse me, in, in solving our DEI issues is to be able to have open and free dialogue about it. And how have you seen issues manifest? Yeah, I, I think there's somewhat of a perceived credibility gap. I think that's probably the largest one. Um, certainly being in a room and, and feeling different is a challenge, um, but I think that's one that you can personally overcome. Um, I have seen the much more, the much larger challenge, for example, of my co-founder, Julie, um, you know, when she's presenting very well and rigorously taken scientific data on what we've done with our engine, you know, the level of objection sometimes that she gets is, is not based in science, but just based in, you know, conjecture and opinion and beginning with statements, statements like, well, in my experience, that didn't happen. And there's sort of that disconnect between sometimes what she shares and sometimes what I share is not viewed as necessarily having that same level of, of scientific credibility um, because maybe the the face that is presenting that message sounds different or excuse me, looks different. And I think that is one of the big issues here. The, the problems that we face in the world are so diverse. It's going to take a huge 
range of diverse solutions to solve those problems. And if we really do want to find the best ideas in the world, they're going to come from a room full of people that look like the world, not necessarily the, the current environment. And I think that's where we have to make the, the largest strides is to be able to go into these conversations a little more open-minded of, hey, you might be telling a different story in a different way and from someone who looks different, but I need to, to view this objectively in this larger context of that diversity and that difference of opinion is a strength that I need to be prioritizing and valuing and not necessarily viewing as something that needs to be addressed or overcome. Now, the company's raised a significant amount of money in the last few years. How have investors responded or reacted to your position on DEI? I mean, Clearflame, we've been really lucky with the investor base that we have. Um, they are very much supportive in, in me and Julie and what we're doing and talking about it. They are very supportive. Um, special shout out to, to Ted Dillon and Dan Goldman at Clean Energy Ventures on that in terms of making something that, that they're raising awareness of within their fund, within their portfolio companies, with their LPs. Um, you know, not, not every investor is that way. I think there's DEI washing out there just like there is greenwashing. Um, but, but Clearflame has been, been lucky in that regard. And I think our investor base has bought into, this is a different story from a different group of, of founders. And that's actually an important market differentiation that matters both in the, in the broadest possible meaning of disruptive potential, both economic value and environmental benefit. And so we've been lucky and I'm just hoping that more people kind of walk in the footsteps of what our investors have done and, and look more critically at how they can find diversity of thought and just diversity of background within their portfolios. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And we've both mentioned Clearflame. Can you give us an overview of Clearflame Engine Technologies and your role at the organization? Yeah. So uh, I am the co-founder and CEO here at Clearflame. Um, my co-founder, Julie, and I, we spun the technology out of Stanford in California a little over five years ago. Fundamentally, what it is, you can think of us as a parts kit that integrates into a traditional diesel engine design and allows that engine to keep all of its current operating specs. So everything that has led diesel engines to dominate trucking and agriculture and construction and rail today that stays in place with the Clearflame solution, but you can completely eliminate the need for dirty diesel fuel and replace it with a decarbonized liquid, something like an ethanol or a methanol. And you know why that's so important in the world today is there are solutions out there that are farther away from being electrified. And I don't mean that as a knock on electrification. We should not we should electrify everything that we can as quickly as we can. The question is how do we complement that for people in sectors that aren't ready to make that change? That's where Clearflame comes in and, and addresses decarbonization from those hard to electrify applications by not requiring that big change in user behavior, performance, how jobs get done today, economic cost, any of it. Now, you mentioned a parts kit, um, you're retrofitting diesel engines. Can you give us some idea, obviously, without giving away any secret sauce, how it works? Yeah. Um, so two parts of that question, I can kind of go into the how it works and then also sort of the go to market pathway. The how it works at its heart is, is pretty simple. Um, the lower carbon liquid fuels are traditionally hard to ignite. That's why they don't work well in diesel engines. Um, but at its heart, it's, our technology is if you get it hot enough, anything burns. So effectively, we are creating a higher temperature combustion process by rerouting things like hot air and hot exhaust, uh, adding some thermal protection to the engine so you don't compromise the durability of the metal within the engine and then making the injection systems compliant with these lower carbon fuels. 
And when you marry all that together, you can emulate the performance of the diesel exactly, but with that much cleaner burning and lower cost fuel. In terms of how do you go to market with it, absolutely retrofits are a great place to start. It's an important part of our technology, that backwards compatibility. Even if we could snap our fingers today and make every new piece of truck and equipment coming off the assembly line electrified, we'd still have millions and millions of diesel engines out there. So we can not only retrofit those engines going backwards in time, we can also work with OEMs uh, in more of a licensing route to get our technology integrated into new engine production. That's something we're exploring with John Deere right now. So it's not just a retrofit, but the fact that it can be retrofit and new OEM is a big part of our value. Now, you mentioned John Deere. When I think of John Deere, I think of tractors. But uh, can you give an example of how big the market is and the different kinds of engines you can address? Yeah, it, it is a, it's a technology that fundamentally can work in any size diesel engine. So the answer to your question is less about technical constraint and more about market position. So if you think of the, the diesel market as a, a giant candle, and my, my co-founder Julie explains this better than me, on, on one end, you have the kind of smaller engines, the passenger cars. And then as you grow bigger, you're looking at um, uh, pickup trucks and delivery vans. Then you start to hit the larger engines, the trucks, the tractors, the construction equipment, the rail. You know, All the way on the far end of that spectrum, you have solutions like the big deep sea marine engines. You know, This is a market that at its whole represents over a trillion dollars in economic opportunity, um, but also, you know, five gigatons or so of, of CO2 emissions. And so where ClearFlame comes in, you've got these solutions like Tesla that are burning away at that diesel candle from the easy to electrify in, the passenger cars. ClearFlame, we're looking at it from the other side. So we're starting with the trucks, the tractors, the gensets that are harder to electrify. You know, where do we actually meet in the middle? You know, where is that trade-off point where ClearFlame becomes a worse solution than electric. Maybe it's at one of those you know, medium range delivery vehicles. The point is, it is such a massive problem and it is such a massive business opportunity that we need to be opening a two front war on how we displace diesel out of the market and clear flames just coming at it from the hard to electrify direction. Now you mentioned uh, methanol and ethanol. Where or how do, how does a, let's say for example, a truck access that kind of fuel? Yes, it's a critical question. It's the first one we get from any customer truck, tractor, genset, anyone. Um, the key thing to remember here is that commercially oriented sectors, um, you know, larger companies and, and equipment user bases interact with the fuel ecosystem differently than you or I do. You know, I, do, I am not lucky enough to have an electric car yet, so I go to the regular gas station and fill up. A lot of trucks never actually go to a publicly available retail station, but have their own private refueling network. So a lot of truck fleets right now do their own diesel refueling logistics. It is just as easy to use the same logistics model and switch the fuel over to ethanol. Um, the same is true for farmers that will have a diesel tank on their farm. You can add that ethanol tank. There are individual owner operators out there that do use you know, the truck stops of the world, the loves and the flying J's. So after we have that initial deployment and expansion as a company with those users that do their own refueling logistics, we will also be partnering with the retail networks as well so that we can meet that individual need. But we're starting with the ones that are um, managing their own fuel logistics to simplify the answer to your question, Raj. Now, over the last few years, there's been some controversy specifically around ethanol about agricultural land being taken up for crops that 
obviously corn that creates ethanol. Um, how do you address those questions? Yeah, um, in, a, in a couple of ways. Um, first is kind of pointing out that those controversies and questions, you know, they were they were raised very early on in the kind of scaling of ethanol that started happening back in 2006 or so. You know, the, the sector has had 15 years to grow, um, and it's shown its ability to grow to the scale it's at today without really compromising the amount of farmland that's that's needed. Um, you know, the amount of farmland that we have today with 17 billion gallons of ethanol being produced is roughly the same as as what it was 15 years ago. So part of it is educating that, you know, some of those fears the sector was able to internalize and address with things like more efficient processes and better crop yields. Um, it is still an area that we need to stay diligent on because in addition to the land use change question, um, the ethanol production process is still not perfect. You know, using corn ethanol on a life cycle carbon emissions basis is about 50% better than petroleum diesel fuel. Now, that's not perfect, of course. It's not something you should thumb your nose at either. It's roughly the same amount of carbon mitigation that you get um, from a switch to an electric vehicle today because the grid is not perfectly clean. And just like I believe very strongly that we need to deploy electric vehicles and decarbonize the grid in parallel, get the grid to net zero, we have to start swapping out diesel-powered equipment with ethanol-powered equipment and then also work with the ethanol sector to drive their product to net zero ethanol. That's something the Renewable Fuels Association has taken on very much. But if we don't remain diligent on driving down ethanol's carbon intensity, then the fuel will become irrelevant sooner rather than later. I think the good news is the sector understands that and they're making the right steps to address it. And going back to the actual engine itself, does it perform the same or better with your product, meaning from a mileage perspective, uh, life of the engine, et cetera? Yeah. So uh, obviously there's a few different variables within that. When you the perform in terms of engine performance, that's completely identical. So the power is the same. The torque is the same. It even sounds the same as a diesel engine, which is not great in all applications. But from the perspective of the user, you cannot tell what the engine is running on, which is great in terms of adoptability. You're not asking someone to change the way they interact with their their engine or their piece of equipment. Um, Efficiency-wise, it is just as efficient as a diesel engine. Now, ethanol has more energy, or excuse me, less energy in it than an equivalent volume of diesel fuel. Um, and so as a result, you have to use more ethanol for the equivalent amount of, of diesel mileage. But that's something else that the ethanol sector has really taken on. You know, ethanol does, it can't just be carbon and cost competitive with diesel on a per gallon basis, but on a per diesel gallon equivalent, per equal amount of fuel energy basis, because that's what's going to give you the cost and carbon carbon savings. And so that's true in the environment we live in today. So while your, your miles per gallon might be lower, your dollars per mile, which is the number you really care about, is also lower because the fuel is that much cheaper and that much cleaner. And that's the metric that we're engineering around. And- how long did it take you to go from idea bench to production? Yeah, so um, kind of the, the background, Clearflame originally grew out of, of what was my PhD thesis. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to turn my PhD into a, a company, even though I actually don't do that much engineering anymore. I'm leading more of the business initiatives. Um, I would say that effort kind of started in earnest in 2011 or 2012 or so. So it's been 10 years in that regard. I'd say it was really around 2014 and 2015 that that Julie and I really started thinking about 
you know, how we turn this into a company. You know, we formally incorporated a little over five years ago, and that's when we left the the lab at Stanford, had the opportunity to move to Argonne National Lab to continue development, raising our first seed funding from clean energy ventures, getting the Series A led by Breakthrough Energy, um, and to where we are today. That that was a where we're starting that first customer testing. You know, the 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 true clear flame process, leaving the university research and getting to you know customer product. That was really about a five year timeline. Now you mentioned how you turned this idea into a company. Crux of our conversation is why would you turn this idea into a company? What motivated you? What pushed you to? I mean, starting a company is never easy. What 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 did you see that needed to be done that drove you to do this? Yeah, uh, it 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 kind of comes from my my previous answer about the diesel market. You know, needing to open up a two front war on diesel and and what are we going to do about those hard to electrify applications? Um, I think what Julie and I saw back in you know 2014 or so was this dialogue around electrification and you know the rise of Tesla and what does that mean for the American market and all that was well and good but but no one was talking about those solutions that were much farther away from having an electric vehicle solution um, so we wanted to start the company in part to complement the electrification message and to start decarbonizing our global economy faster. The other half of it, though, just goes back to Julie and my roots and in getting into energy in the first place, which is there are two sides of the, the energy problem on this planet. You know, we talk about the need to achieve sustainability, but there are still close to a billion people in the world that don't have access to basic electricity and multiple more billions that need more access to the goods that are enabled by movement in diesel vehicles. So if we want to equitably solve our sustainability issues, we need to be driving down the amount of fossil fuels we're using while simultaneously increasing energy access. And we can only do that if we're looking at technologies that can be deployed in a non-capital intensive way, which is another one of the big benefits of using the traditional design and traditional fuels. We can address those markets that are not just hard to electrify, but also more capital constrained. Because to be blunt, that those areas need a solution too. And we're not solving our global problems unless we, we meet that need. You mentioned increasing energy access and global problems. Why is that important to you? Because I fundamentally believe that everyone on this planet deserves a certain standard of living. Um, I think it is completely inappropriate to say, to look at the amount of carbon per individual that we emit in the Western world and say, well, yeah, okay, we got to get that kind of under control. But like, oh, no, like, you know, people that are currently emitting much less right now, they need to stay that way. I mean, that's absurd and as unfair as it sounds. Um, I think if we are solving our climate problems by leaving more people without goods and electricity, that's an unacceptable trade-off. Um, I, like I said, I, I personally find it offensive. And that's, that's what we're here to do something about, to prove that we do not need to ask people to make that trade-off. And that's part of what Clear Flame's about. Now, it seems like this idea of equity being equitable runs deep in your veins. Where does that come from? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, I think it's one that has, you know, come very early, you know, from my parents. That was something that was always, you know, very important to them. I think it was um, instilled it in me at an, an early age, you know, the, the areas in which I have been lucky and that I am the product of you know, my family and where I grew up and the opportunities we have here in the United States, um, the education system that I was to be a part of, being able to go to, to Stanford, you know, largely on, 
you know, financial support. Um, that that is something that that would not have been possible if the world had not been looking to treat me in a fair way. Um, and as a result, it's I think it, the the burden then shifts to pay that forward to also make sure that I'm doing what I can to make sure those fair opportunities extend elsewhere into the world. Um, it's just the the base value of don't forget where you come from. And if someone does something for you, make sure you do what you can to help in return. I love the idea of paying it forward. I kind of wished it was a requirement. Uh, me, me, me as well. Um, I think it is something we are largely starting to see. I, I think we are, don't get me wrong, there's a long way to go, but we are seeing a generational shift right now in terms of enough is enough. Let's Let's stop kicking the can down the road in many ways, we've had the the opposite of, of pay it forward in the past. It's, well, let's reap benefits now and ask future generations to pay for it when it comes to our, our carbon emissions and climate change. Um, and now we're starting to see a generation that's, like I said, saying enough is enough and that needs to shift. And we need to start talking about how the world, you know, 15 years from now is going to be a lower carbon one, not one that is prioritizing, you know, our lives today, regardless of what that means for carbon intensity in the future. Yes. And, and to add to that, I think you mentioned it a couple of times as being part of the solution. I think that we need to instill a more holistic way of looking at the world from an ecosystem perspective and realize that, you know, we kind of go through the education system and we have all our individual subjects, but very, not very often do you hear about how one might relate to the other, not realizing that this is an entire ecosystem and pulling on one string affects the entire system. I think that's absolutely true. And I think sometimes, um, particularly in the United States, which I guess I can speak to most credibly, there's a, a deeper problem of this notion that there always has to be a, a winner and the rest are losers, that there's going to be a single silver bullet to to solve our problems. And that's going to get all of the resources and glory and, and economic benefit and whatever other metric you want to provide. The reality is the world's problems are too diverse to find that one silver bullet solution, diverse in terms of application and geography and, and wealth disparity, all of it. And if we're serious about solving our global problems, one of the worst possible things we can do is say, well, let's figure out what that silver bullet is going to be and, and invest in that completely. Because the longer we spend waiting for a silver bullet, the more time we're going to spend ignoring sectors for which that silver bullet might not apply anytime in the next few decades. And when we don't have those next few decades to spend, um, I think there's been examples of this in the past. Um, you know, we, we, we live in a country right now that's making great strides when it comes to electrification, which is awesome, you know, but back in 2006 or 2007 or so, you know, everyone thought that, or at least kind of at the, the federal level, we were going to switch over to a hydrogen economy. And as a result, we saw a lot of battery companies flee the United States for other areas. And I think we've, we've learned the error of our ways. We realized that batteries and electrification fit in, but that was a decade of lost investment in this country. And I think that's a mistake we, we cannot afford to repeat that we need to look at hydrogen, we need to look at battery electrification, we need to look at low carbon liquid fuels, different renewable technologies like wind and solar. If we're not doing all of that at once, the the breadth of the energy problem is so massive and the time we have to solve it is so relatively short compared to how ingrained fossil fuels have come, become in our global economy. We need all hands on deck, all of the above, and doing it all at once. You know, you mentioned the winner take all 
And it kind of reminds me of the finite game versus infinite games. Are you familiar with that? Uh, not in particular, no. So like I think, any game theory sense? Sorry, go ahead. In the sense that, you know, I'm going to again talk about the West, where our experience is, is that we look at life from a finite perspective, winner takes all, only one mm-hmm. winner. Whereas an infinite game would be somewhere where we all continue to play and we all continue to kind of win. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a, a zero sum type thing or not. Um, right. Yeah, I, I think I think we absolutely do suffer from the mindset of of you know this is something finite and someone has to lose for someone to win. Now there there is some truth to that, of course. I mean, we need to cap our global emissions, which means if one sector is eliminating, excuse me, is emitting carbon, then another sector has to pick up the mantle and, and reduce more more carbon on their side. So there there is some reality to that in terms of what we have to achieve as a planet, what sustainability means. But within it, and this is a, a huge part of what, what Clearflame is here to say, one of the things that has slowed the move towards sustainability is this notion of something like a green premium, right? And that, that goes to so your, your finite game comment. Well, I can reduce my carbon, but it's going to cost me more. And you know who's going to compensate me for that? Is it Are you going to pay more for the loaf of bread I deliver? If not, how am I recovering my transportation costs? Clearflame, one of the most powerful tools we have is that our solution is actually lowering the cost to do business for our users. The fuel that we're using is cheaper on a per energy basis than diesel. And so as a result, it's not sustainability or economic windfall. It's both at once, which means some people will adopt Clearflame technology um, for you know sustainability goals. Others will adopt it for purely economic reasons. But look, if you're adopting it for sustainability, you're going to save money. And if you're adopting it for the economic reasons, you're still going to reduce your carbon footprint. And by aligning those two market forces, that's how we're going to drive adoption and by extension decarbonization at the rate it needs to happen. So going back to Clearflame, you've been on the journey about 10 years. What's the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself? I, I think one of the the big lessons I, I've sort of learned in in starting Clearflame and kind of my growth as an entrepreneur in this space, um, really, really kind of two big ones. Um, one is just the need for discipline. That's something that I was, you know, very lucky to have to kind of develop throughout my my swimming career um, in that past life. And applying that same discipline to Clearflame, you know, this is a a problem, a massive problem at a global sc- scale. It requires a world-class team and a world-class effort to, to solve it. And you don't get to world-class without having that certain layer of discipline. Um, and I think the second value is, is sort of related to that, which is you have to get past a fear of failure. Um, again, I was, I was lucky in my swimming career and you know I was on the U.S. national team multiple times, but I tried and failed to make the, the Olympic team multiple times as well. Um, but I wouldn't have reached the heights I reached in the swimming career if I was afraid of, of what would happen if I failed to make the Olympic team. And I ultimately did, but I had a lot of other success as well. And that was something I can look back on with pride. I think it's the same logic has to get applied to Clearflame. You know, we can't be afraid of the many different ways that we can fail. We have to do what we can right now to maximize our potential, the value of our outcomes, both economically and environmentally. And stay focused on that and don't let the the mental mental barriers of, well, what if it doesn't work, drag us down. You have to be willing to go somewhat blindly on that journey and, and trust on your ability to deliver. Now, as a co-founder and CEO, 
you have a hundred different requests coming to you on a daily basis. Can you give an example of how you apply discipline to that? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, the the request is actually a perfect example because um, yes, there there are a hundred different requests that you have to that come in, and I think there's two things you really have to apply to that. One is you have to be willing to say no, simply that. And that's not a knock on the request that might have come in, but simply there is a, a bigger burning fire at Clearflame or in the world that has to be addressed and my time has to go there. Um, going back to your finite games, time is zero sum and you have to be cognizant of that as you you budget your time, but also being diligent in your follow-up. I think that's one of the things that Clearflame has done very well in our relationships is as those inbound requests do come in and we have that partnership potential you know, making sure you flag it and you document it and you track it in terms of, you know, the burden is on you as a startup to make sure you're growing those relationships. If, if you're not making it easy for people to do business with you, no one's going to do business with you. And so you need to realize that you're the one responsible for making sure the experience for the people that do reach out to Clearflame that we do need to grow the relationship with, that, that they're hearing from Clearflame with the information that they need at the cadence they expect it. Sounds like you have a system in place. Would you mind sharing? <laughs> um, I wish I had a system in place. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, it's uh, it's actually something that has been part of my personal growing pains. I think in the last six months or so, which is you know, Clearflame. We started this year with about five employees, and we're at fifteen, sixteen at this point, and we'll get to twenty five or so, you know, by next year. So those requests you were talking about, Raj, it used to be you know, just the external ones and I can manage them. But now that there's a lot of internal leadership I have to do, I do need to become more diligent in, in streamlining that process of, of not just how do I, how do I take care of my own work, but how do I learn to delegate properly? And that's been a learning experience for me. You know, when I was doing my PhD, I was uh, alone on that project until the last year or two, another grad student joined me. Um, And so I, I got very used to, to working alone and kind of a lone wolf type way that was not naturally leading itself to developing an ability to delegate. And that's something that I've had to learn. Um, and I've been very lucky to your question about process to have some experienced people come in um, at the business development level, at the technical leadership level, at the admin level. Um, Cheryl Laboon, who joined us you know, a few months ago to kind of help teach me how to, how to run a company as an executive. I've been learning systems and processes from them um, but I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't have a long way to go. Well, I really appreciate the candidness and transparency in that. Yeah, and no, of course, that's that's important. Don't don't be afraid of who you are. I love that. So let's fast forward 2030. So nine, 10 years from now, if Fortune, Fast Company, Newsweek were to write a headline about Clearflame, what would you like it to read? It is real-time goal setting. I'll think about the headline for a second. I'll kind of start to what I would want the the, the body of that article to be, which is by 2030, um, I would really like to see Clearflame at the point where, you know, if we're succeeding as a company, we'll be certainly having success in, in multiple market verticals. We will have our trucks on the road and, and customers loving what they're seeing. We will have the ag and construction equipment in the field through John Deere. We will have power generators supporting the utilities and microgrids and backup generation and emergency generation for for power generators. Um, by that point, I would like to see the fact that we have started a a global movement. And just like Tesla, you know, had to prove that people wanted EVs. Um, but if if the other OEMs, if Ford and GM and all of the Europeans were not looking at what Tesla has done and said, "Hey, we can meet this market need too," then electric vehicles would not be 
having the market impact that they're projected to have. Tesla, even as powerful and valuable as they are, cannot do that on their own. And Clearflame is not going to solve the decarbonized liquid fuel problem on our own. We need other OEMs to start following in our footsteps. And that's where I want to be by 2030. Um, so what does that headline look like? You know, maybe something about how a, a story of how university research can ultimately spark a global movement towards a, a different way of, of solving these problems. Um, you know, Clearflame establishing a leader leadership position and in, in leading a coalition of of how do we get decarbonized liquid fuels into a more diverse range of markets? I think a, a headline in that direction of you know Clearflame, not just having it be an article about Clearflame, but about the movement that we have started and where we're going with that movement. Well, I, c- I can see that absolutely, and I think to your point, it, found, it sounds like how Clearflame pulled the market along and influenced people to think differently, specifically when it comes to diesel. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was a mistake we made early on in the company and kind of assuming that the proof would be in the technological pudding, you know, if the solution worked, that people would get it. Um, And I think we did learn, you know, kind of a year or two ago that, you know, there is a lot of misunderstandings about how the alternative fuels work in the market today. Raj, a couple of your previous questions, what the real environmental impact is, you know, these fuels have become significantly better than they used to be what the economic benefits are. They are a lot cheaper than they used to be. You know, we've had to educate the market on those realities so that we could build the following that makes people see why our technology makes sense. You know, so much, we've kind of mentioned Tesla several times in this conversation, but so much is around the the narrative, the storytelling of the actual product itself. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think it's I think it's a little different in the Tesla and Clearflame cases. Um, I think the way Elon Musk was able to succeed um, with Tesla was largely about making electric cars cool, which he has. I would I would love to be able to have a Tesla, and I'm hoping someday that I do. Um, that was kind of the narrative shift that that happened in the EV market. That this was a product that people had to have, just like an iPhone. And we're seeing it pay off for Tesla in the same way that that the iPhone example paid off for for Apple. Um, you know, Clearflame. We probably can't emulate that strategy exactly. You know, people generally don't buy trucks because they're cool. Um, they, they buy them for those, those economic benefits. And I think that's where Clearflame's narrative is sustainability can also be good for your bottom line. And that's the narrative that we need to change. Get rid of this false dichotomy of, am I reducing carbon or saving money? And if we can get the sector bought in on that, um, based on the underlying facts, um, everyone knows that sustainability pressure is real. But to solve that problem in a way that's also improving your margin is an absolute slam dunk business case. And that's how we're going to start this movement. Well, right now I'm imagining a big rig or a tractor with a nice little decal on the side that says improved by clear flame. Yes. uh, I think that's actually pretty spot on. I would, I would, the one I always example I give there is it's kind of like the Intel inside, like clear flame inside. Everything about this truck is, is what you expect, but uh, in terms of, of how a diesel truck operates today, but you can know that the cost and sustainability benefits are there because this is a clear flame inside product and that's a brand you can know and trust. Absolutely. And like the car enthusiasts, um, I've been around the truck community, if not the um, tractor community, but I'm guessing that those communities are very strong amongst themselves. Yes. Uh, these are, are groups where, where word of mouth travels quickly. They want to be early adopters, but also kind of teach the sector about you know why they're on the cutting edge of technology and why that matters for their business. And so you know, making sure that customer experience is good and to double down on what I just said, that we have a solution that 
people can trust to to get their jobs done and and to continue to put food on their table, um, that's a critical part of who we need to be. I love that idea. Well, BJ, my last question, and you kind of touched on it earlier when you spoke about discipline and the examples you gave, but, and this could be professional or personal, if you could share some advice, words of wisdom or recommendations with the audience, what would it be? Um, I would say, uh, you know, you brought up the discipline example, but I think I would, I would double down harder on my second point, which is don't be afraid to dive in with two feet. Don't be afraid of failure. You know, um, there's 10 different ways Clearflame could have failed up until the point today. And there's probably a hundred different ways we could fail going forward. Um, but you know, what, what really is the worst thing that happens? You know, we got to pick ourselves up and find something new to work on to continue to drive the change we want to see in the world. And I think that's a really small price to pay compared to the impact that we can have with this technology. So I would say, um, you know, be willing to bet on yourself and, and take that risk to make that change, be the change you want to see in the world, to use that quote. Um, and I would also, you know, kind of speak directly, you know, to your previous questions about DEI, you know, to those out there that might be looking at engineering, um, whether because you're an underrepresented minority or because you're a woman, um, and, you know, seeing an engineering class that largely does not look like you, you know, that's not something that you need to be afraid of. Um, I have found that those rooms generally are, particularly amongst my generation, very welcoming to that diversity. And I think the world is looking for more of us, more of that diverse intellectual base that's out there to stand up and be recognized and add our thoughts to this global discussion. So same answer in the end, don't be afraid, especially don't be afraid just because what you're saying might be different or because you look different or feel different. That That's that's a change we have to see in the world and we have to be part of making it happen. Well, I think bet on yourself and don't be afraid is a great place to leave off. BJ, I really appreciate your time today and I'm super excited for what you're doing and catching up with you again soon. Yeah. Um, Raj, could I actually have one more thought? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, th- I would say, you know, that would be the kind of advice I would I would give to the individuals. And I think the the statement that I would make to us as a society is be willing to embrace a range of solutions. Uh, Kelly Cynical is a is a an individual from the automotive space. You know, he says the future isn't is it's not just electric, it's eclectic. And I think that applies narrowly within the technology that Clearflame is talking about today. You know, how do we complement electrification? I think it's true in terms of the the way the faces look of the people who are solving these problems. Be willing to inv- embrace diversity of thought, diversity of solutions, and working together to achieve our, our global goals. I love that. Not only electric, but eclectic. Yeah, I can't take credit for that one, but yeah, it's a, it's a great quote. BJ, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Raj. I appreciate yours as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.